We are in a teaching series called Matters of Life and Death. We are spending four Sundays really digging into these topics because these affect all of us. We've been seeing new life in church. There's just babies all over the place here this morning. I love to see it. And we've also experienced death in our church, and we've lost some beloved family members. And so we want to understand life and death from a biblical perspective, not only that it gives us hope and comfort, uh, but that it also uh, gives us truth to build our life on and uh, truth to share with the world. Amen. So last Sunday, we started with the idea of born of the flesh, and that is simply that uh, at some point, we all came alive. At some point, uh, we all were developed in the womb. At some point, we were all born, and we looked at life from God's perspective, that God is the creator of life. We declared that conception or fertilization is the moment that life begins, and that our responsibility as the people of God is to honor and nurture and protect and care for life from the very beginning to the very end. And I know that life at the very beginning is what creates all of the political vitriol. But that's not the only life that we're called to care for, right? Yes, we are called to care for and protect babies in the womb. But we're also called to care for and protect children that need parents, Maybe children that are trafficked around the world and kidnapped into slavery against their own will. We are called to protect and nurture the elderly. We are called to view everybody with a measurable value, right? We have our sign on the door, every person matters. It doesn't matter uh, what their intellectual capability is. It doesn't matter what their physical capability is. It doesn't matter if they're lost in addiction. It doesn't matter if they're 90 years old and can hardly move. We are called to care for and protect and nurture life from the very moment of beginning till the very end that God chooses for each one of us. And that is our passion for life. Amen? So today, part two, we're going to look at born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. And so if you've got your notes, which you can find inside your bulletins, uh, you can find them in our church app. They're attached to this video if you're watching this on our website. And they're also attached to this audio if you're listening to the podcast. Here's our big picture point. I always like to share what are we going after as, as we dive into a teaching. This is what we're going after. We're seeking to fully understand the concept of being born again, why it is necessary, and how we respond to it. What is this second birth, and what does it have to do with life and death? You guys with me? So that's what we're going to do today. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go to John chapter 3. We also always put it up on the screen so that uh, you can read along. John chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night. So let's set the stage for this conversation, right? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. A Pharisee was one sect or one division of the Jewish people, and they were a very strict sect, right? They were very much about following every jot and tittle of the law, so much so that they added a bunch of rules to the law and, uh, and, and tried to be the quote-unquote police officers of all of those religious rules. They also formed the Sanhedrin, which was the council that oversaw all of Israel, all of the religious affairs of the nation of Israel. Now, 
these guys loved to be in charge, right? They, they loved all the honor and the pomp and circumstance in public. They loved to wear their fancy robes, and they loved to be viewed as really super religious, and they loved to wag their finger at everybody, but they didn't really follow any rules themselves, right? And so when Jesus came along teaching relationship, not religion, he was messing up their whole system, And so they immediately opposed themselves to Jesus. So here we have Nicodemus, who's a part of this group, who is publicly opposed to Jesus, but he sees something in Jesus that's triggering his heart. And so he wants to go talk to Jesus about it, but he can't do it publicly for the shame that he would receive from the Sanhedrin. So what does he do? He goes to Jesus at night to ask him a question. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I find it interesting that Nicodemus didn't even ask a question. He just said, listen, I have to admit that you're from God. I know my my fellow brothers in the Sanhedrin won't admit it publicly, but I have to admit that you're from God. Jesus' response, I don't think, is what he was expecting. Jesus responded and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, who is confused, said to him, How can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Right? Consider the expansion that would have to take place for that to be a reality. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has born of the Spirit is spirit. Hence why last Sunday's sermon was entitled Born of the Flesh, and this Sunday's sermon is entitled Born of the Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the spirits. Right? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus, doesn't even ask a question, Simply recognizing, I'm pretty sure you're from God because of the things that you're doing. And Jesus immediately says to him, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And then he says, you must be born of water and the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. So to be able to even see it and to be able to enter it. And so what we have here from Jesus' teaching is we have the requirements to enter the kingdom of God, which you can see lower down in your notes are born again, born of the water, and born of the Spirit. So we got a lot of metaphors we're working with here. And so our goal today is going to be to explain these metaphors and really break down what Jesus was teaching. And so first, we got to talk about the kingdom of God. Apparently, Jesus assumed that we would want to see the kingdom of God and we would want to enter the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, the simplest way to say it is the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. Anywhere that God rules and reigns, 
That's his kingdom. And I've shared this many times before, but I will share it again. Our stance on the kingdom of God is that it is both now and not yet. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. The kingdom of God is now, right? What was Jesus' very first sermon? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The kingdom of God is now. What that means is anybody whose life is submitted to the rule and reign of God, that's the kingdom of God now. But the kingdom of God is also not yet. We will not experience the fullness of the kingdom of God until the last day's resurrection, which we're preaching on in two weeks. There's a little teaser trailer. We will not experience the fullness of the kingdom of God until the last day's resurrection when we're all standing physically in the presence of God. Then we'll know what the fullness of the kingdom looks like. So it's the rule and reign of God now in our lives, and it's also the rule and reign of God over the entire earth in the last days when we will spend all eternity with him. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says we must see the kingdom of God, we must enter the kingdom of God. So to understand this new birth, this second birth, this being born again, first we have to lay a bit of a foundation. Our first foundational truth is this is that we are conceived with a sin nature. We are conceived with a sin nature. So remember last week we talked about that, that beautiful moment of the creation of life where there's a female zygote and there's a male zygote. And within each one of those zygotes is 23 of the female's chromosomes and 23 of the male chromosomes. But not an exact split because you guys remember only the reproductive cells know how to mix up those chromosomes to create genetic diversity in the beauty of God's creation. And at that moment when the zygotes come together and God brings them together into 46 chromosomes and that cell splits is the moment of life and within that code is everything God needs to form you and shape you into exactly who you were meant to be. Well, here's the other part of that beautiful moment of creation, is that very moment when life happens, that life is encased in the curse of sin. That's the bad news. Why? Because Adam and Eve sinned, and every single one of us is from the seed of Adam, which means every single one of us inherits that part of our humanity from Adam, and that part is the curse of sin. So from the moment of conception, we have a sin nature. From that beautiful moment of creation. Listen to how David puts it. After David committed a terrible sin, he cried out and said, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithfulness. According to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my wrongdoings and my sin is constantly before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in guilt and in sin my mother conceived me. And that sentence may be confusing. It's not that he was conceived while his mother was committing sexual sin. Jesus was, I mean, David was saying that from the moment of my conception, sin was there. You guys got that? 
from the moment of my conception, sin was there. Last week, we talked about going back to Job, and somebody pointed out to me that maybe I wasn't super clear last week. When I shared that the book of Job was written before the book of Genesis, that doesn't mean that it happened before the book of Genesis, right? Because Genesis starts at creation. The timeline puts the story of Job right in the middle of the book of Genesis, but it was written by Job long before Moses ever wrote the book of Genesis. So that's why we turn to the book of Job to look for the earliest writings of how people uh, interacted with God. And so if we look at Job, how did these earliest people feel about this concept of being sinful from the very beginning of life? Well, Job says, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes out and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one, right? So even Job from the very beginning was like from the moment God opens his eyes and sees us for the first time, he already sees sin in us. And then Job's friend Eliphaz said it like this. What is man that he would be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he would be righteous? Behold, he has no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt. And so from Eliphaz's point of view, right, even the beauty of the stars of creation are not pure in God's sight. So how could those of us who are born corrupt from the seed of a man and the seed of a woman possibly be viewed any different in God's eyes? Are you guys with me? So we are conceived in sin. From the moment life begins, the curse of sin is upon us. So we are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by practice. Even if you were born and somehow managed to not sin the entirety of your life, which we know is impossible, you would still need the redemption of Jesus because we are guilty from the moment we are born because of the sin nature, because we are encased in the flesh of Adam. Now, this brings up a really important question, and this might be a bit of a side trail, but we're going to go down it because I think it's important. I want to talk to you about the concept of the age of accountability because the question is, what happens to all the babies that die? What happens to every fetus, to every embryo that doesn't come to full term, is not birthed as a baby, but dies in the womb or before the womb? What happens to babies that die? Right? This is an important question. And so I want to talk to you about the concept of the age of accountability. We see this in Isaiah chapter 7 when Isaiah is prophesying about a child that is to be born. Isaiah says, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be abandoned. Right, So Isaiah is clearly saying there is a moment, there is an age when a child is old enough to refuse evil and choose good. And before that age, that child does not know enough to refuse evil and choose good. Whatever that age is, that's what we're calling the age of accountability. Listen to Deuteronomy 139. 
God says, moreover, your little ones you said would become plunder, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good and evil. Right? These little ones have no knowledge of good and evil. So this is the concept of the age of accountability. But here's the important thing. The Bible never, ever, ever gives an exact age. So any faith tradition that tries to tell you an exact age, don't listen to it. Jewish tradition will tell you that it's 13. That's why they practice the bar mitzvah in the Jewish tradition. That is the celebration of a child reaching the age of accountability. In the Mormon church, they'll tell you it's eight years old. I don't know where they got that from. In the Catholic church, they'll tell you it's seven years old. I don't know where they got that from. The Bible never says, and I think it's critical to recognize the wisdom of God, why the Bible never says. Because every person is different. We're talking in context of children. Every child reaches the age where they understand the difference between good and evil at a different age. But we're not just talking about children. What about mental incapacitation? What if somebody is born with a disability that they're never able to mentally understand the difference between good and evil? I don't care if that person is 57 years old. They still haven't reached the age of accountability because they don't know. Are you guys with me? So don't ever listen to anyone who tries to tell you that there is an exact age of accountability. That's why at Kauai Bible Church, we leave it up to the parents to decide when their children will get water baptized because that child has to be old enough to understand right and wrong and to choose Jesus, right? King David, as I mentioned earlier, when he sinned, he got a woman pregnant that was somebody else's wife, so he had the husband killed so that he could bring Bathsheba into his home and they could have this baby together. God's judgment comes upon them, and God says, because of your sin, this baby is going to die. And so David begins to fast and to mourn and to pray because he thinks maybe God will spare this baby. Well, God does not. The baby dies, and immediately David stops fasting and mourning, and he is comforted. And his attendants are like, wait a minute, you were fasting when the baby was alive, but now you're comforted that the baby is dead? What's going on? And David said, well, when the baby was alive, I still thought maybe God would take away his judgment. But listen to what David says. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I am going to him, but he will not return to me. David was comforted in the fact that he was going to see his baby again. David was confident in the fact that his baby would be redeemed, even though that baby could never make a choice for or against God. So here is our definition of the age of accountability. It is the age at which an individual is intellectually able to choose Jesus or reject him. And that could be five years old, or that could be 65 years old. It doesn't matter. It's the age at which an individual is intellectually able to choose Jesus or reject him. Anyone who dies before reaching this age is under the atonement of Christ and goes to heaven. So every life that is ended through abortion, 
Every embryo that dies because of miscarriage, every baby that dies tragically, every young child, even somebody who was incapacitated their entire life and then dies at an old age is under the finished work of Jesus and goes to heaven. That is our stance on the aids of accountability. And that is an important question for us to be able to answer. Looking at some other traditions, Stephen Wellam, who comes from the Baptist tradition, he says most Christian traditions teach that children enter the world fallen due to Adam's sin. That's what we just taught. But some argue children are not guilty before God until they knowingly disobey God's commands. If the child dies before reaching that age, he or she receives salvation based on Christ's finished work. Once the child knowingly sins, however, they become accountable for their actions and have reached the age of accountability. At that point, salvation comes through conscious, active repentance and faith in Christ. Come on, that's good theology. How about the Methodist tradition? They say the atonement of Christ is unconditionally effective in the salvation of those mentally incompetent from birth, of those converted persons who have become mentally incompetent, and of children under the age of accountability. The atonement of Christ covers them all. That's good theology. All right? That was our side trail. Now we're coming back. So we're all under the curse of sin from the moment of conception. What does that mean? That means that our spirits are dead because of sin. And what are our spirits? It's the part of us that connects with God, right? We talked about last week, what's one of the things that elevates humanity above all other creation? It's that God breathed his breath into us. He didn't do that with any other part of creation. Therefore, we have a spirit. We carry the breath of God so that we can connect with God on a spiritual level. Well, the Bible teaches that because of sin, that part of us, that spiritual part of us that connects with God is dead. Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest." right? We are spiritually dead because of our sins. We like to cover it up. From Jesus' perspective, he shares a couple of things that really open our eyes to this. In one instance, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is trying to teach people the difficulty, the high standard of discipleship, right? And so somebody says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, and Jesus says to them, well, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, this can sound kind of callous from Jesus. The guy just wants to bury his father. And Jesus says to him, no, let the dead bury their own dead. Well, dead people don't generally do work. So what could Jesus have been talking about? What Jesus was saying to this man is let the spiritually dead take care of the spiritually dead. 
Don't let the spiritually dead stop you from experiencing the new life I have for you. That is the concept of being spiritually dead. Jesus also used the metaphor of whitewashed tombs. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Right? A whitewashed tomb means you made the tomb look beautiful on the outside. But that doesn't change the fact that it's full of death on the inside. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. We do our best to dress up the outside. We want so desperately to look good in front of people. And so we'll do everything we can to dress up the outside while trying to ignore that everything is dead on the inside. And so we'll use intellectualism, right? I want to be smart. I want to understand things. I want to explain the whys. We'll use exceptionalism. I want to accomplish things. I want to do great things. We can take on the character. Hey, I'm the fun guy. I'm the one on the life of the party. That's who I am. Some people take on religiosity. I'm going to follow rules. That's what's going to cover up the deadness on the inside. For some people, it's people-pleasing. I'm just not going to have any boundaries. I'm just going to do what everybody wants to make everybody happy. Whatever we do to try to cover up that everything is dead on the inside. We're whitewashed tombs, which can lead to indulgence, medicating ourselves, addiction. We're whitewashed tombs. So we're conceived under the curse of sin, and because of sin, we are spiritually dead. And the consequences of spiritual death is that we cannot connect with God. We cannot know God when we are spiritually dead. The Bible describes it as if you had a veil over your eyes so that you can't see where you're going. It says that it is a veil over your heart so that you cannot know God. But the Bible says that when the gospel is preached, that veil is lifted for just a moment. And when you hear the gospel, you have that moment where you can make a decision for Jesus and everything can change and you have an opportunity to know God. But if you choose in that moment to reject Jesus, God simply lowers the veil and you continue on, hopefully getting another chance where somebody else will share the gospel with you and God might lift the veil again. But because of our spiritual death, we cannot connect with God. We cannot know him. Only when God divinely lifts the veil do we have an opportunity to give our lives to Jesus. We cannot worship God. When Jesus was with the woman at the well, he said to her, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So if our spirit is dead, we can't worship God. We cannot approach his presence, right? Jesus said, if you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom. God is perfect and holy. Sin cannot approach his presence. And also, unfortunately, we are under the wrath of God, right? We just read that we were children of wrath. What does that mean? That means not only are we outside of God's goodness, but God actually sets himself against us. So what do we do? 
This is where we're going to circle back now to Nicodemus and talk about the understanding of these three metaphors. Remember that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, which means he knew the Old Testament scriptures. And so when Jesus was talking to him, Jesus knew that Nicodemus knew the Old Testament scriptures. So what would Nicodemus have been thinking of when Jesus is talking about being born of water and born of the Spirit? There's a good chance he was thinking of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel 36, the prophet, speaking for God, said this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinances." Right, So when Jesus says you must be born of the water and born of the Spirit, here he's Nicodemus going, oh, Ezekiel prophesied. And the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy was the new covenant in Jesus, that we would be washed with water and that we would have a new spirit put inside of us and that new spirit inside of us would guide us to walk according to God's statutes. So let's define these metaphors the requirements to enter the kingdom of God. Our first one is being born again. What does it mean to be born again? Well, according to Ezekiel, it means that God gives us a new heart and a new spirit that desires to live a new life for him. Right? God is putting something new inside of us. Something new is happening. So how do we know? How do we know that we've been born again? Well, part of it is that there is a new desire that is birthed inside of you. Now listen, as long as we are encased in the flesh of Adam, we are always going to have the potentiality for sin. We will never escape it. We will never be perfect as long as we are in this flesh. But God puts a new heart and a new spirit inside of us. And that new heart and that new spirit, whereas our flesh desires to do wrong things, this new spirit desires to live to please God and to live God's way. And when you start to feel that new desire, you nurture it. It's like two dogs fighting inside of you. Which dog is going to win? The one you feed the most. So we begin to nurture this new spirit and this new desire within us. It's important to recognize that when we come to Christ, it's not that we're the same person we were yesterday. It's just today, now I don't have to feel bad about my sin. No, that's not what happens. What happens is you are born again. God turns you into something completely new. You're not the person you were yesterday. You're somebody completely new with a new life and a new destiny and a new desire birthed within you. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That is being born again, is to say, I'm not the person I used to be. I don't have to live that life anymore. I'm not a slave to that way of life anymore. I'm a new creation. I get to start from scratch, and I get to learn a whole new way of living life. Come on. That's a celebration. What about born of water? Now, we could look at this and say, well, Jesus was alluding to baptism, right? 
Baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Yes, I believe Jesus could have been alluding to that, but according to Ezekiel, that's not specifically what Jesus meant. Being born of water means that we are cleansed from our sins and our sin nature. This metaphor of water is referring to the cleansing work of salvation, right? We need to be cleansed. I like to work out. I'm in the gym a lot. I like to lift heavy things. And, and so I'll go to the gym and I'll work out and I'll come back upstairs and I'll be all sweaty and pumped up and I'll go find my wife and I'll be like, come on, baby, I'm sweaty and manly. And she says to me, no, you're stinky and disgusting. Go take a shower. Right? We can stand before God and be like, come on, God, I'm good. I do good things. And God says, no, you're stinky and filthy. You need to be cleansed. And that's what Jesus meant by being born of the water. Listen to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Being born of water means that we have been cleansed of our sin and of our sin nature, and we are no longer filthy before God. And then finally, born of the spirits, we receive a deposit of the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in this new life. Right? Ephesians chapter 1 Paul describes it like this. He says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a first installment of our inheritance in regard to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The moment that we are born again, God deposits his Holy Spirit in us. He calls it an installment. Have you ever bought something on an installment plan before? For five easy payments of $39.99, you can have this product you can't live without. All right, I'm going to make my first installment, and they'll send it to me. It's mine now because I made the first installment, but I still have to pay it off. Well, when God puts his first installment of the Holy Spirit within us, that's his declaration. You are now mine. You are my child. You're not going to see the fullness of glory until the last days, but I have put my installment into you. You belong to me now. And when that Holy Spirit is within us, we now have the ability to live for God. We can't live for God in our own strength. We can't live for God in this cursed flesh from Adam. But when the Holy Spirit is inside of us, we can follow his leading and his guiding. Listen, my Los Angeles Chargers have hired Jim Harbaugh as their new head coach. This is a day of rejoicing for long-suffering, cursed Chargers fans, okay? I'm excited about Jim Harbaugh, but I got even more excited about him on the day they won the national championship. And he's up on stage being interviewed with the trophy presentation. And the person, I forget, it was ABC, whatever channel it was on, ESPN. The person asks Jim, man, what was this journey like? What was it like leading this team to 15 straight wins and winning the national championship? And I love this. Because a lot of times, people will give glory to Jesus on stage, right? I give all the glory to Jesus because we won this championship. That can be fairly generic. Jim Harbaugh was not generic. When they asked him, what was it like leading Michigan to the national championship? He said, 
I was led and guided by the Holy Spirit every single day. Come on. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit. We have the first installment of our salvation deposited within us. And that deposit will now lead us and guide us to live the newness of life that we were created for. Let me have the worship team come back up today. Hey, man, we're, we're preaching the gospel here. We're not going to mention the Raiders. Come on. <laughs> so how are we born again? Three simple things. Believe, repent, confess. Believe, repent, confess. We have to believe that Jesus is God. We have to believe that he came to this earth as the fulfillment of the promised Jewish Messiah to die in our place, to pay the price for our sin, to redeem us from our sin nature. And we have to believe that he rose again. We have to repent, which means we have to turn away from our old way of life and turn towards God. And we confess we confess, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And Jesus, I'm inviting you to be my Savior. It's that simple. And those three things can all happen at the exact same moment. We believe, we repent, and we confess. And in that moment, all those metaphors that Jesus shared with Nicodemus happen in an instant. We are born again. God puts a new heart and a new spirit with us so that that dead spirit is now gone and we are alive as a new creation. God cleanses us from our sin and our sin nature. We are no longer filthy before God. And God deposits his Holy Spirit in us so that now we have the power to live for him and to walk in his way of life. That all happens in a supernatural moment when we believe, repent, and confess. That's why we have to be born again. That's what Jesus meant. And that's what this new life is all about. Before the age of accountability, everyone goes straight to heaven. After the age of accountability, we all have moments in life where the veil is lifted up and we make a decision and we are born again. And if we choose not to, the veil is lowered and we hope and pray that we have another opportunity. Jesus. Lord God, I pray today. I pray that this truth would be a great encouragement to us that have been following you. That this truth would be a great celebration of the life that we have been given, the grace that we have been shown, and the power that we have to live a new way of life. So Lord, let our hearts be uplifted. But God, I also pray that this message today would be life for those who don't follow you. Those that are here in person, those that are on our live stream right now, those that maybe are listening to this podcast, that this would be a moment of life, that this would be a divine moment where the veil was lifted up and that we could see the truth and that we could see you, God. And in this moment that we could choose to believe, to repent, and to confess that Jesus, we need you, we want you, we submit ourselves to you. And we would see the miracle of a life being born again. Jesus, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you do that work right now? Would you do that work right now? Let's all just keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
If that's you today, I want to pray for you. And so if you're here today, and maybe you've heard this message for the first time, maybe you've heard it for the first time in a long time, maybe you've heard it before, but right now you're in a moment where the veil has been lifted. And you say, I'm ready to make a personal decision. I need to be born again. I'm ready to surrender all to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And if that's you right now, you just lift your hand up. No one's looking around. You're just just responding to me, saying, Pastor, pray for me. I'm ready to make that decision. Thank you, Jesus. I don't see any hands here in person, so I'm just going to pray for anybody who might be watching this or listening to this. I pray right now, God, do everything you promised you would do. I pray that people right now would experience that cleansing. They would experience that lifting of shame. I pray right now that people would feel that newness, that new desire uh, that would begin to rise up within them. I want to live for God. I want to live a different way. I want my life to matter in a different way. And I pray that they would begin to experience the power of the Holy Spirit deposited within them, Lord. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.